Holding the position as head coach of Notre Dame, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish football team in December 2001, George O'Leary resigned in disgrace. An investigation had revealed that more than 20 years before he had included false claims on his resume, including saying that he had lettered in football when he wasn't even on the team, and that he had a master's degree, which he had not earned. The lies had been discovered um, at any at any of his previous coaching jobs, or the lie had not been discovered at any of his preaching coaching jobs. But the high-profile accord of the position he was at as coach of Notre, the Notre Dame football team led to his exposure. In a statement, O'Leary said, due to a selfish and thoughtless act many years ago, I have personally embarrassed Notre Dame, its alumni, and fans. With that in mind, I will resign my position as head football coach. Through a considerable amount, though a considerable, um, a considerable amount of time passed, O'Leary's uh, deception and his, and his discovery did come to light with devastating results. He had seemingly reached the heights of his possession, profession only to wake up to find it all taken away. Like George O'Leary, the religious leader in Jesus' day had also made themselves out to be something that they really weren't. They were outwardly, they were one thing and they were telling people, you know, certain things and, but inwardly, in their minds and in their hearts, they weren't what they were claiming to be. Now in our story this morning, Jesus uses a parable to expose the hearts of these religious authorities. What we'll see is that because they were more concerned with maintaining their influential and prestigious positions, they completely completely dismissed God and the, role that, and the role that God had intended for them. In addition, what we're also going to do, what we're also going to see, is we're going to take a look at some of the lessons and warnings this parable can teach us as believers, and why it's important to know your role. What I hope God will reveal to you, and this is my heart and my, my, um, my desire as you walk out the story, is that um, the success and failure to serve or lead other believers will be large will largely depend on who you believe God to be and how you see yourself in relation to him so as I said please um, if you have your Bibles again we're gonna be in Mark chapter 12 if you're there already um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning Lord again we come before you in humbleness and gratitude and, uh, and just with a heart of wanting to know and understand you more, Lord. You've given us your word to learn from, to, to feed and grow and nourish us, Lord. And, and we ask that we just never take that for granted. Lord, reveal to us what, we, what you want to show us through this passage through the, through the parable of the vineyard owner and let us so that we can walk with you more closely so we can experience who you are Lord Lord fill this room with your Holy Spirit let us hear from you Lord we ask that you just open our hearts and minds to, to hear from you, Lord. 
thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, and I'll begin reading from verse 1. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some and killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and... So, I'm sorry, they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew... He had said this parable against them. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This parable of the vineyard owner begins by introducing us to a man who had dedicated his time, his energy, his, all his effort into planting a vineyard. Now, just as a quick way of reminder, a parable, all a parable is, is just a, a simple short story to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And that's what he's doing here. And, and, and this is, we begin with, uh, with, he speaks in parables. So this is the first of many parables he's going to start um, teaching about. And the last time we see a parable was back in Mark chapter 7. So here, um, again, with the next few lessons we're going to be talking about are, are some of the parables he teaches on. Now, from what it seems like in, in this particular parable, it seems like this man had done all the work. He bought the land. He prepared and toiled it. And he bought the land, prepared and, and, prepared and uh, toiled the soil. And then he also planted, planted the grapeseed. He purchased the materials to make a fence. He built it and then put the fence around it. He then dug out a pit from a wine press. Now, I don't, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but in these, in these uh, wine presses, these pits were usually made out of stone. And actually, I have an image here. I want to show you what it, uh, what it looks like. Here's, here's the wine press. Here's a, uh, typically what it would look like. You know, you have the, um, again, it was usually rock uh, hewn, open air system, and they would put the grapes in this section here, and they would, you know, they were pressed, um, tr trodden, and then actually this area here, um, and then there'd be, I guess, channels to to be able to fill the vats or the jars with with the wine. With it would be fermented, and well, there's a simple uh, explanation there. I, I'm not a big you know, uh, uh, 
expert on and how it's done, but I found this image and I thought it was interesting. You know, so um, this pit wasn't just a simple dirt pit. It wasn't, um, you know, something easy to do. So there was uh, definitely hard work, some time and effort in order to dig uh, this pit for the wine press. And finally, he built a watchtower as a lookout for those who wanted to steal from the vineyard or animals who just wanted to come in to sneak in and destroy that vineyard. So as you can see, as you can tell, this wasn't an easy task. It was hard. There was a lot of effort put into it. But nonetheless, he did it. Nonetheless, this was what he poured himself completely into. And the, and, the, and the interesting thing is, and as I was doing my research about uh, the vineyard, and I guess it's something I didn't know, was that he still, had it to, he still had to wait three full harvest seasons, three full years, to see if that planting, if that was a successful, um, uh, if he was successful at it. You know, I had to wait three years before there was any um, true any grape on that vine and if there was any uh, if any fruit was being produced now after all the work had been completed we're told that he leased he rented well actually lent, leased is a little bit different than rented but he leased this vineyard out to tenant farmers to take care of it basically to maintain it to watch over it, to maintain it now again just a quick explanation if you didn't know, a lease is a contractual agreement where one party allows another to use land or property. And I guess in this generation, you know, it could be a car or a house or, you know, anything else for a period of time during which payments are made to the owner for its use. Well, after those initial three years, once it was time to harvest the grapes, once it was time to, to, to see what was being produced, and I can imagine again this, this owner being on pins and needles, just like, oh man, I've been waiting, I've been working my, my butt off, and, and, um, and now I just want to see what's being produced. He was excited. We're told in verse two that the owner sent one of his slaves to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the, farm, from the farmer. He wasn't, he didn't send his slave to collect all of it. He wasn't there to make you know, crazy demands. He just wanted a part of it. He just wanted a piece of it just to see what was going on, what, you know, how well that fruit was ripening. And what we see that as soon as that slave arrives, what do they do? They jump them. It's like being, being in a hood. I mean, they, they straight out just jumped them. And then they sent him away empty-handed. But that wasn't it. The owner sent another slave. And we're told they hit this one in the head, more than likely they were throwing rocks at him, and treated him shamefully. He sent a third, and we're told that that one they killed. Verse 5 also tells us that he still sent many others. He sent a lot more, a lot other other servants, and either they were beaten up, or they were killed. 
Now, as a last resort, I mean, that took a lot of patience in and of itself, I think. Now, as a last measure, he decides to send his one and only son. A son that he loved, a son that he, he, he saw grow up as a little child. And he sent him to collect from this fruit, from his fruit, from his vineyard. And you know, in his mind, he was thinking, man, I, okay, I understand he may not have respected these slaves, these servants, but maybe, just maybe, they'll respect my son. But as we see in verse seven, these tenant farmers had other ideas. They had other plans. They were thinking to himself, they were thinking to themselves, hey, if we just kill this son. If we just kill his son, he's not gonna have any more anyone else to send. And his owner is just gonna, you know, he's gonna give up trying, he's gonna give up and just leave it to us. He's gonna grow old or he's gonna die, he's not gonna have any anyone to give it to, and he's just gonna give it to us. Again, they had other ideas. In verse 8, it says that they killed the son and then threw his body outside the vineyard. Just like a piece of trash. As if he was nothing. They killed him and just tossed him out, out of the vineyard. How disrespectful, how sad, how, you know, the depths of their corruption, the depths of their sin, the depths of their wickedness. They threw the son out like a piece of trash. They figured again that by killing him, the owner would just give up, give in, and give over the vineyard to them. Jesus then rhetorically asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And then he answers, he will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard over to others. Then using the words found in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, Jesus immediately changes the imagery to a stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus continued, this came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. This speaks of the Messiah as a rejected stone that ends up becoming the cornerstone of God's work. At this point, at this particular point of the parable, as Jesus is speaking, it's starting to become clear to the religious leaders that the owner of the vineyard was God. The vineyard was the people of God. The servants that were beaten and killed and mistreated were the prophets of old, the prophets of, that we read about in the Old Testament. The son was Jesus himself and the farmers the ones causing all the trouble, the ones who ignored and mistreated the prophets, and the ones who were planning to do away with the son were the, were the religious leaders themselves. Jesus was illustrating in this parable how God had sent, a, sent prophet after prophet to Israel, only to see each one beaten and killed. Yet God, in his great mercy, in his great love, and his patience 
kept sending warning after warning to Israel's religious leaders and caretakers. And still, even after all that, even after all they had done, he never gave up on his beloved people. He never gave up. It was with that relentless love, God sent that which was most precious to him. God sent his one and only son, the apple of his eye, the, the, the love um, that a father has for a son is just unspeakable. But he sent his son down there, down here, to speak to these religious leaders, to give a warning, to give this warning. He sent his son hoping their leaders would recognize and respect who he was and finally listen. And finally heed the warning. But they didn't. They didn't want to. They didn't. They, they, they shut their ears. They shut their hearts. And as Jesus correctly insinuated, the son would eventually be rejected and killed just like the others. Now, yes, God's wrath would finally come in 70 AD when history records that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, the sacrifices, and its leaders. Now, as far as who the identity of the others of whom the vineyard would be given to has been debated, has been debated. Some have said that it's the church, and there's a theology behind that. While others have said that Jesus was referring to a literal change of leadership. Now here's my take. Because he was indirectly referring to the, and talking to the religious leaders, I'm inclined to believe that Jesus was saying that the rejection of the Messiah, because of the rejection of the Messiah, leadership would change from the Sanhedrin, which were the religious leaders at that time, to the Jewish followers of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Now, I can't fully get into the reasons behind it, but um, on your own time, I, I, I recommend, I urge you um, to check out Romans 11, verses 1 through, six, 1 through 6, to see what I'm talking about. Well, going back to our story, it was not obviously clear that the religious leaders, um, clear to the religious leaders that Jesus was talking about them. That Jesus, that this parable was, was um, Jesus was using this parable to indirectly shame them for their wickedness. This stirred within them uh, a stronger desire to have them arrested, to have him arrested. It just, that, that feeling that it just was boiling inside of them. Man, who does this guy think he is? And we covered that last week. Like, who does he, you know, who does he think he is? Coming here and challenging us and talking about us and, and, and through these parables. So you can just sense and, and, and see that they were just, it was just boiling inside of them. Their actions to have Jesus arrested would continue, continually, would continue to be dictated by their feelings, by what they were feeling inside, rather than on factual evidence. Now, having been in law enforcement, and, and it's, you, you can't do things based on your own feelings. You've got to have actual evidence to be able to arrest someone, to be able to pr prosecute someone. But that wasn't what they wanted now. It was, it was more than that. It was just now, um, again, being dictated 
by those strong feelings of hate, anger towards Jesus. But they knew, as we see here at the end, they knew that they publicly couldn't do anything yet. They couldn't publicly just go there and just take him and arrest him. And as I mentioned last week, the reason is because the crowd was still behind Jesus. The crowd still loved Jesus. They still were, they were liking what he was doing. I mean, he had, the, you know, the day prior, or a couple of days prior, he had gone to the temple and cleared everything out and he was speaking out against the religious leaders and, and just, these people were seeing there was just something different about Jesus. There was just something deeper that they were connected to with Jesus. And they were still on his side. So what do they do? What do these religious leaders do? They just left Jesus alone and just walked away. They just left him, let him be, and just, and just left. And as they're walking away, you can imagine them planning and just scheming in their minds another, uh, another opportunity to do what they wanted to do with him. I read this interesting, um, uh, I would say it's, it's kind of like an article or, uh, um, uh, well, let me share it to you. Let me share it with you. Richard Foster, in celebration of, dis of discipline, wrote this. Self-righteous service comes through human effort. True service comes from a relationship with a divine other deep inside. Self-righteous service is impressed with a big deal. True service finds it almost impossible to distinguish the small from the large service. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. True service rests contented in hiddenness. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. True service is free of the need to calculate results. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. True service is I'm sorry, true service, true service ministers simply and faithfully serve uh, ministers simply and faithfully because there's a need. Self-righteous service is temporary. True service is a lifestyle. Self-righteous service is without sensitivity. It insists on meeting the need even when to do so would be destructive. True service can withhold the service as freely as, as true service can withhold service as freely as, as perform it. Self-righteous service fractures community. True service, on the other hand, builds community. Now, what do you, again, I think looking at this, we see a clear distinction of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the ministry of these Pharisees, these Sadducees, I mean, the, the scribes, the leaders, those who were in charge at that time. What was... What is so, what, but here's another question for you. What is so important about this parable that Jesus had to teach it? And what can we as believers learn from it? Well, whenever Jesus witnessed blatant sin, he didn't hesitate to call attention to it. 
Now with ordinary people, he was gentle, he was compassionate, he was tender, he was caring. However, towards the religious authorities, toward those who were in charge, he pulled no punches. He said it as it, you know, he basically said it as it is. He wasn't afraid to call them out in their hypocrisy and in their wickedness. So why was it necessary? It was necessary for Jesus to teach this parable because Israel's leaders had failed to meet the requirements God had established for them. You see, they were supposed to be directing, exemplifying, and instructing the people on who God is and what He desires for them. They were supposed to be the priests of God's people, showing them who God is teaching them, not just to, this, to, to, to the people of Israel, but to the people of the world. They were supposed to be examples of who God is. And likewise, God now wants to use believers to direct, exemplify, and instruct other believers on what it means to have faith in Him. Now, us as believers in Jesus Christ, He wants to use us to be that example, to direct people to God and instruct others on how to be followers. As followers, of Jesus Christ, we've all been given spiritual gifts. First Peter 4.10, in First Peter 4.10, we're told that we're supposed to use those gifts to serve one another. If you're sitting here and you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, eventually there ought to be a desire within you not to just be a consumer, not to just be a consumer of the Word, but to be a producer of it as well. If the Lord has been speaking to you about serving or leading in some capacity, I urge you again and I advise you to follow that calling by taking that step of faith. It's, and it's challenging, I know. I mean, I've, I've done it and, it's, and it hasn't been easy, but you know what, to, to take that step of faith. But in the end, there are spiritual and eternal awards waiting for you. All you've got to do is just take that step. I mean, don't, you, know, you know inside of you, who, you know, if the Lord has, has been calling you to share, to lead, to serve. And let me tell you, as, as a new church here at Fresh Vision, I mean, there are plenty of ways you can serve. I, more than likely, I'm not going to tell you no if there's something in your heart you want to you wanna serve or something you want to do or... Um, again, unless it's something like crazy, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to be like, yeah, go for it, let's do it, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I sometimes wish that I could just have a million hands to do all kinds of different things, you know, but if that's your desire, is to serve, whether, and let me just say, it, it may not be here, it could be somewhere else or, or whatever, I mean, what I want you to just be, be faithful to that calling, to, to being obedient to where he wants you to, to where you, he wants you to be. But again, let me tell you that with that calling to lead or serve other believers, there's a great responsibility too. This parable serves as an eye-opening warning to anyone leading 
and to anyone serving within the church. Yes, although this parable was intended as a rebuke against Israel leaders, I see a few lessons Christians who want to be servant leaders, or yeah, servant leaders, can learn. The first lesson this parable teaches is that this, this vineyard has an owner. Psalm 24.1 tells us, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. The people we serve, the people we lead, are not ours. They're not our people. They're his people. They're God's people. When we can accept and understand that fact, the way we serve one another will just be less about us and more about him. We'll just get a, we'll get a different perspective. You know, if I sit here and say, oh, you guys are my people, you guys are, you guys are mine, man, that, that's too much pressure for me to handle. I mean, that's, there's no way I can handle that, that stress. You know, you guys, uh, there's, there's, you know, you guys all have, you know, issues, problems, and, and I'm, I'm here to serve, and I'm here to, to, to listen, and, you know, but I, can't take it all in, you know? I mean, that, you know, it, it's, it, it would just break me. And I've been broken before, and I've been, you know, emotionally just all messed up. And the Lord has taught me along the way, you know what, these are my people. You just direct them to me. You just point them to me. Remind them that there's hope. Remind them that there is something to look forward to. The, the second lesson this parable teaches is that God has already done all the work. Let me put it this way. Believers have been purchased already by the blood of Jesus. He continually, God continually prepares, toils, and plants his seed in the hearts of believers with his word. He's built a spiritual fence around our hearts with the knowledge he gives, with the wisdom that he gives us. He's dug out a pit to collect the good juice that comes from the fruit of our self-sacrificial labor. And the Holy Spirit acts as a watchtower to protect his precious vineyard from anything or anyone that wants to come in to steal and destroy it. If he calls you to lead, all he wants you, all he wants for you is to maintain, care, and watch over his vineyard until he comes back. The third lesson this parable teaches is that God is patient. Second Peter 3:9 says, The Lord does not delay. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all for all to come to repentance. God knows precisely when the fruit will be at its ripest and will not return 
until it's time for the harvest. We shouldn't mistake God's patience for, for God being impotent, for God's impotence. He's a patient and loving God. He's not, a, he's not up in the, in the cosmos not paying attention to what we're doing. He's not up there, you know, so that just, so, you know, we can do whatever we want to do and, and um, be whoever we want to be. No, he's, he's just waiting. He's waiting for that fruit to be ripe. You know, there's, I, I believe that before he comes back and takes us home, he is waiting for that last person. And scripture tells us, is an indication to that, that he's waiting just for the last grape to ripen. And when that last grape ripen, ripens, man, he will come back for the harvest. According to Acts 1-7, it's not for us to know, though. It's not for us to know and to figure out when that's going to be. Our job is to be responsible for what he appointed for us to take care of. And the fourth lesson, and I kind of mentioned in the third one, the fourth lesson in this, that this parable teaches is that God will return and reap. We have a picture of what this will look like in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. And it says, There I looked, and there was a white cloud, and the one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a gold crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another, another angel came out of the sanctuary, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his, sick, his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Let me ask you, during that harvest, if he was a harvest right now, will he find you as wise and faithful caretakers? Or will he find you to be like those untrust, untrustworthy, wicked farmers? The answer to those questions depends on the faith and hope you have in God and whether you can patiently endure, whether you can just have that patience to endure the trials, the hardships until he comes back. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait. The Lord is good for those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him, it is good to wait, to wait quietly for deliverance from the Lord. But yes, there will be challenges in ministry, but there are many blessings as well. I can't tell you how many times I've cried out to the Lord, Lord, can you, can you please hurry? Can you please hurry up and just, I'm, I'm tired and I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't think I can, I don't think I have the strength anymore to continue the work that you've asked me to do. And I've said that with tears in my eyes and I've said that with just with frustration and 
but when all this, when all the whining and complaining is done, because you, you know, it's during, it, we whine. That's that basically we are whining during those times, and you know, again, we have a father who just amazing. He just listens to that whining. He, he'll never be like that friend who's like, okay, stop it, cut it out. You know, <laughs> he hears that whining and he hears that complaining, but when that complaining ends. God has a way of reminding me of why he chose me. He always surprises me and he always just says, hey, look, look what's going on there. And I'm like, oh, man. And I start feeling convicted for the whining and the complaining. And but he reminds me of why he chose me. And it's during those reminders that I find the strength to faithfully continue with the work he specifically called me to do. Now, if you've been in ministry for a long period of time, or even just a short period of time, and you've seen God work, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you may be feeling that call from the Lord, from the Lord to join or start a ministry, to be part of a ministry to lead maybe others in discipleship, to a Bible study, you know, into um, maybe leading a group to go into, you know, food pantry, collect, whatever it may be, to serve, to lead. Some of you may be having that feeling, that, that pull, that call from the Lord. Let me remind you what an actor said in a now famous viral video and I'm going to try to my, do my best to, to do my impersonation but he says he says what are you waiting for just do it you know what I'm talking about you've seen that viral video I mean one, one way or another that's what he's that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to tell you is just what are you waiting for just just do it just go out there and just serve be scared. It's just as worse to reject God's call on your life because you fear, because you're scared, because you don't know what's going to happen, than being untrust, untrustworthy at it. Than to do it and just say, you know, and just disregard and just fail at it and be untrustworthy at what He's called you to do. But let me tell you, from personal experience, if you take that step of faith, and keep your eyes fixated on Jesus, you'll soon discover that you're just, all you are is just a hammer in his hand and that God is doing all the work. You're just an instrument. He's the one that's pounding on those nails. He's the one who's doing the, the chiseling We're just the instrument. He's doing all the work. The problem with the religious leaders was that their assumptions was their assumptions about the nature and character of the vineyard owner. Of the vineyard owner. For centuries, for thousands of years, they had failed to recognize who they were and what their role was and why they were supposed to do it. 
time after time, um, warning after warning, we read in the Old Testament how they beat and killed those who tried to remind them, those who tried to warn, those who tried to tell them, turn back from your ways, repent, turn, your, turn back to the Lord. And they would for a little while, but eventually they started serving other gods and then they would do wicked things and, and, and the Lord would send somebody else because he was just so patient with his people. Whether it was these religious leaders that Jesus was dealing with or the, the leaders prior to him, all they could see was, the, the, was how valuable the fruit was, how valuable the fruit of the vineyard was, and they were willing to do anything, go to any measure to hold on, to keep that fruit for themselves. And as we see here, and as we'll eventually uh, see in our, as we continue in Mark, as we go through the next few chapters, even if that meant rejecting and killing God's one and only son in their greed, in their pride, in their stubbornness and hard-heartedness, they forgot that God would never give up, give in, or give over his precious vineyard. He would never, he's never going to give up on us. He's never going to give us over to something else. He's going to fight for us. He's, again, he sent his son, his one and only son, to die for us. And I don't know about you, but if I were to do that, man, I'm going to do whatever is possible to make sure no one harms my vineyard, harms you know, that which is, which is precious to me. Because the Bible tells us that those who have faith in Jesus are now adopted children, this parable has significant meaning to believers as well. You and I are like a special vineyard that has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. The owner of that vineyard is patiently standing by until every last grape is ripe before coming back to harvest it. In the meantime, He's also gifted and called every believer to be caretakers of that special vineyard in some form or capacity. How you handle that responsibility largely depends on how constantly you remind yourself, how constantly you keep in mind who God is and the trust that he's placed on you. As our title today points out, it's important that you know your role. As I mentioned, yes, there will be challenges and obstacles. We're never told it was going to be easy. We're never told it was going to be a cakewalk. But let me assure you, there are far greater blessings and rewards that come with being a faithful servant of God. Now at this time, I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and, and close your eyes as we begin closing out in, in, in prayer. Maybe you're sitting there listening, watching this message. And God has been speaking to you about the condition of your heart. He's been revealing to you all the times you've ignored, shamed, and hurt those he sent your way with warnings to repent 
and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. You've begun to recognize that your indifference and your hatred toward God is due to a false assumption that you can do a better job at running things than him. I urge you not to ignore the good news of Jesus Christ any longer. No matter how bad you think you've blown it, no matter how bad, you, how far you've walked away from him, he will forgive you. You see, he loved you so much that he died on the cross for your sins, rose again on the third day to give you eternal life, and ascended to heaven to prepare a place for you to be with him. He absolutely knows what's best for you and wants you to trust him. That trust involves taking a step of faith and surrendering yourself over to him. If you sincerely are ready to give yourself over to Jesus Christ, to surrender your heart over to Jesus Christ and to make him the Lord of your life, I'm going to lead you in, in, into a prayer. And I'll, again, this has to come from a, a sincerity, from a sincere heart, from the bottom of your heart. If that's you, if you're again watching and listening this message later on online, or just in the quietness of your heart, just pray this. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry for being a disobedient child. I ask that you forgive me of my sins, Lord. Set me free from the bondage of my sin, Lord. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you are Lord. I accept your forgiveness. And I ask you now to change my heart, change my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk with you for the rest of my life. Thank you for making me, for bringing me, bringing me in and adopting me as your child. Lord God, I pray for those who prayed that prayer that you will just strengthen them, that you will comfort them, that you will just Show them where they ought to go. Um, bring great people into their lives. Just lead them to a great church where they will just be able to teach your word. Build them up into the people that you, you've called them to be, Lord. And again, just bring great people into their lives as well. Lord, I pray for everyone that's in this room right now and I ask that you... Also fill them with your spirit, Lord. If they're feeling weak, if they're feeling discouraged, if they're feeling um, anger, if they're feeling joyful, Lord. 
whatever it may be, just fill them with an overflowing abundance of your Holy Spirit. If they're seeking comfort, Lord, give them the comfort they need. If they need encouragement, Lord, give them the encouragement that they're looking for, Lord. And if they're just full of joy, Lord, may they just be able to share that with others, with their brothers and sisters, Lord. May everyone here be the salt and light in their homes, in their schools, in their communities, wherever they may be, Lord. If there's people, you know, if there's anyone here that just has been feeling that calling to serve, Lord, just show them that Again, it's and if it's for you, Lord, it's going to be okay. Lord, I thank you for everyone here, Lord. I thank you for bringing them here and for using me as your tool, using me as your instrument. Forgive me for sometimes just whining and complaining, or forgive us, anybody here that's just been has had that attitude, Lord, but can remind us. Never stop reminding us of your blessings. Lord, ask we, we just we just enjoy the rest of this time so we'll be able to fellowship together and and exalt you and and Lord bless their everyone everyone's week, Lord. Continue to fill us and show us and guide us where we need to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.